Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Now, here's the thing in the middle that I might have sided towards, which is this. We know that it predominantly, fatalities predominantly happen for people over 60 or 65. What I might have done, and I might have gotten killed, but nevertheless as president, is I would have acted quickly and said, those over 60 no longer leave the house. You're quarantined. You don't go to work. Yeah, I don't care what you do. You're quarantined. Those under 60, continue to go, but social distance the best that you can, maybe even wear masks, not to save you, but in case you've got it and you're spreading it, right? And you won't know that you have it, right? If we did that, I believe that the death rate, the fatality rate would be approximately what it's going to be this way, and you wouldn't have shut down any of the economy. In fact, restaurants would still be open. You'd, you, you know, you'd be distancing, you'd have to separate the tables more, you'd, you know, you'd have to rethink it, maybe the prices would go up, but, but we would have gotten used to that normal for a period of time. And the older people who are more likely to die, predominantly more likely to die, you've seen the stats in New York City, would be safe at home, you know, where they need to be. And uh, it wouldn't have been perfect, but we might have ended up in a close to similar place. Yeah, so I think policy decisions are gonna have to be different going forward because they're going to see this is just too much. It's too much damage. But I hope we take some lessons from this about what went wrong and what went right. But, you know, politics, I, I, I would put in the down category. <laughs> but that's always been in the down category, unfortunately. So who knows? Everyone's going to be thumping their chest like we won. But there's a lot of there's a lot of debriefing that needs to happen. In the future, we will have better tools. And I think in the future, we'll be better prepared, far better prepared to launch vaccines and get them to market in six months, not in 12 to 18. 12 to 18 is still a record, but it needs to be six or three or two. We need to have rapid protocols to do so. We need to use AI to find the best candidates. I mean, you know, you know, we can go down. And I think we'll be better prepared for that in the future. So always good comes of these things, but 10, maybe $20 trillion hit to the world economy is un. We, we've never seen anything like it. World War II didn't have that kind of hit, right? We don't know what this is like, but we'll figure it out. And we're going to get to the other side. It's going to be fine It's because it, that's how humans are, right? You come out the other side, you figure it out. We're going to be fine. Joining me once again on the podcast is the super smart, super intelligent, super genius, Kevin Serace. He's an expert in AI. He's built and sold AI companies. He runs an AI company right now, an artificial intelligence company. And AI is going to be one of the big movers and shakers in the new normal once we get back to this new economy. And we talk about that and other things that are going to be happening and that we can expect in the new normal. 
You know, uh, g- given the fact that we're in the in, in in the middle of what we're in the middle of, it's great. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's a shutdown, and on the other hand, it's a pause. And there's lots of things to do when when there's a pause. <laughs> well, the funny thing is is uh, uh, and we can talk about this on the thing, right? My my wife is running her company from here too. She runs a public company, a uh, billion dollar public company, right? And she is just as productive as she's ever been. I'm just as productive as I've ever been. And, and people are saying, well, what are you doing with all your extra free time? I don't have any free time. I'm still working. <laughs> she's, she's working in a, you know, an office on the other side of the house, right? So we, we don't I, see it, each other. We both go to work. Is it weird? Like, I feel like actually the days have become shorter. I feel like it's almost impossible to get done all the things I need to get done each day. Uh, the days are shorter. And part of it is that we're not, like for us, we're not getting in the car or anything, right? Where we'd normally maybe go to an office. And so um, work starts at, you know, 7 a.m. and doesn't finish until someone's knocking on the door saying, can we eat now? Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I don't know what changed other than I'm working more. <laughs> so, I know. That's the thing is because I'm not wasting time traveling to meetings, I filled up the time. I, I, in the beginning of this, I felt like, oh, I've got, oh, actually, we should just, I guess Jay's recording this, but. Yeah, kick it off. So we've started. In the beginning of this, I felt like, oh, I would have all this extra time. This is going to be great. But then I very quickly filled in all the extra time and even one or two extra things like, oh, I'm going to do this project. Well, that's an extra three hours a day that I, I that I thought would be one hour, but it's three hours. Add two of those and that's the whole day. That That's right. Actually, everybody's filling up their time. Uh, uh, you know, look, this is hard on non-tech workers, right? Those of us sort of in tech or writers or whatever, or futurists, however, whatever we're doing, uh, can do that from home. Actually, maybe more efficiently than meeting. And we're learning to use the the, the online video tools uh, uh, much better. Um, obviously, uh, those of us who went through 9-11, you know, did a lot of Skype and realized it was horrible, but uh, that was the best we could do with low bandwidth and, and, and yeah. you know, lousy compression and limited CPU, blah, blah, blah. Well, these, I mean, the platform we're on today is stunningly good. Um, the bandwidth, I've got a gigabit a second here, right? And so bandwidth isn't an issue. CPU isn't an issue. And so all of a sudden, this is quite good compared to what yeah. we had just uh, 5 or 10 or 20 years ago. Which leads me into, uh, and and by the way, I'll do the intro afterwards that'll appear before, but which leads me into, um, you did a great article uh, recently about the post COVID world. So I'd like to discuss that if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. It got tens of thousands of reads. So, <laughs> so we love it when people read something that you're right, as you know. Yeah. And, and obviously everybody is doing a lot of thinking about this. Uh, I think, I think a lot of your predictions are, are dead on and, and maybe there's a few more that we can do, but let's, let's just go down the list. Um, uh, first off, by the way, how's your business during this time where it seems like the entire economy is upside down before we get into the list. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So, so, um, my, my, my wife runs a, uh, a public company, uh, Which now company? running from home. The name of the company is called Silk Road Medical. And, uh, they, uh, 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 uh produce a, a, uh, a direct access carotid artery stent procedure basically. And so, um, and so, you know, I sort of get to see, uh, her operating a, a, a large public company from from home, 
and interacting, and she is having as many meetings as she's ever had. Uh, and um, and of course, we're at at at, at Appvance and and uh, the other boards I'm on. You know, we're executing our our plans. And it turns out that uh, some businesses are, you know, somewhat immune to this sort of shutdown. Like, if you're the restaurant business, this is a really bad thing. If you're in the hotel business, it's really bad. But if you're writing and putting articles out, it's as good as it's ever been. If you're in tech and producing software, uh, in our case at, at, at AppVance, obviously working on advanced you know, sort of AI for, for finding bugs in software, turns out business is just as good as it's ever been. In fact, for our partners, it's excellent. So our big partners, you know, big consulting firms, PwC, Deloitte, et cetera, things like that, right, without naming specific, their business is great, and they still have to test and, and, and be sure that software is working for their clients. And so they're still out buying and, 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 and moving, and our business is, is, is up, not down. Fascinating. Really? So, so, you, so you find that people, that companies in the tech space didn't necessarily take a pause. Their, their budgets were still operational. They were still making buying decisions on, you know, a kind of elective products. Here's what we found is that the, some companies like e-commerce, right? If you're not on the front line of e-commerce, like you're not Amazon or Walmart or whatever, uh, uh, again, without mentioning names, some of our clients have had to really pull back because the type of e-commerce they do was completely wiped out during this period of time. Like and, what? Um, let's say cars would be an example, right? You know, if you if you if you trade used cars online, you're probably not moving any cars right now. It's just that nobody can go see them. You can't. You know, it's so right. so. Some things are in 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 real dire straits. But if you're Amazon and you're trying to hire a hundred thousand plus people because you know, you can't, uh, you, you can't service your, your clients. All I have to do is say Instacart, DoorDash, et cetera. Have you tried to order something from Instacart? It, good luck. You can't get on. I mean, people are saying, I don't want to go to the grocery store, but I have no choice because I've tried for three weeks to buy groceries online. There's, there's no deliveries. So they can't hire fast enough, right? So some businesses are up, some businesses are down, and some businesses will never come back. Uh, and those are probably, you know, some of the weaker ones, and some are just taking a pause. So most of our businesses are, are, are large businesses, and much of our sales at AppFans is through partners. And those partners already have long, long-term relationships with their clients, and their clients are still executing their plan to move to more AI and sort of less testing with people and, and better test results of software. So that progress towards DevOps and DevQA ops, et cetera, it's just marching forward. So some small companies have had a cutback budgets, but the larger ones, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. These items are one budgeted and two actually pay for themselves very quickly. Like the ROI on an AppVance purchase is months, you know, some number of months, and, and in a year it's it might be five or ten times what you would have spent otherwise to find the same bugs. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. So uh, so that's interesting, and and you've got you've had a bird's eye view of what industries are kind of, you know, slowing more than most and what yeah. industries are kind of picking up. And I think that probably my guess is that plus all of your experiences as an entrepreneur have motivated uh, the, the choices you made in this article about the the post-COVID world. And the first item you pick, which I, I agree with, and I'd like to brainstorm on this for a second, you say movie theaters yeah. down and yeah. you say theaters may never return to the record levels of 2019. And I 100% agree. I, 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 it's sad, right? It's kind of sad because 
you and I grew up in an era, certainly, where going to the movies was a very cool thing, right? Uh, but but uh, movie theaters have hung on a little longer than they probably should have. I hate to say that, not because we don't like it, but because we do have a digital delivery platform now that can deliver 4K into almost everyone's home, you know, through whatever platform, right? Through through 100 networks right now uh, that you can buy from, you know, from Hulu to Disney Plus to Netflix to Amazon Prime, et cetera. And, and the, the studios only get about half the ticket price or less from a movie theater, right? So they're getting call it $6 a head. Well, if I as a studio could instead come out with a, a, a film and charge you $19 and sell just as many seats direct to you as I, as I do in the movie theater, I'm going to make two or three times more. So, Well, let me, let me ask yeah. about that because there's a, there's a couple of assumptions there. Yes. So one is if the movie theater is going direct, when I'm sitting at home studio and Studio going at, direct. Studio. Yeah, the, the, the studio is going in direct. When I... When I sit at home and I look at my content choices, there's a, a billion possible choices. Even if I'm just looking at TV choices, there's a billion possible choices. Whereas if I say to myself, oh, I want to go out to the movies, there's only four choices, you know, depending on where I live. Right. So so there's more competition. So I might not sell as many tickets if I was a movie studio uh, as opposed to putting them in the theaters. So it remains to be seen. So, so let's look at it this way. The music industry went through this, you know, the 15, 20 years ago, right? And, and, of course, they were in the business of selling CDs. Turns out they weren't, but they thought they were. And, when, and then CD sales, you know, plummeted as, as we went online to purchase our music. Quote, unquote, purchase, but rent our music, so to speak, for 99 cents a song. And it took a long time for the record industry to absorb that change because it lowered their revenue. And in time, they made them $1.29 a song and this and that. But in time, that got usurped completely by streaming. And when streaming hit, they said it's the end of our business. But what did they do? They eventually figured out the right licensing deal and the right pricing for streaming services, where streaming services could charge a certain amount a month and the studios would get what they needed. So studio revenues have been going up the last three years and now 80% of the revenue is from streaming. 80% okay. is from streaming, a small percent, about 10%, 10 to 15% is from uh, uh, purchases online, that is uh, iTunes, I, I buy the song, quote unquote, for $1.29. And then uh, about 5% is CDs. Very, very small percentage. In fact, most people can't find their CD player anymore. So the yeah, I didn't know CDs still exist. They still make them. Uh, in fact, LPs this year outsold CDs for the first time in 30 years. What's, LPs. A, what's, a, what's an LP? Oh, no, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Vinyl actually outsold CDs. Because, You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Because people uh, are willing to pay $20 or $30 for vinyl to put it on a record player because there's a certain feeling about watching that record turn and play for 20 minutes. And um, this is absolutely true. This is the first year vinyl has outsold CDs in, you know, 20 to 30 years. So, oh, my gosh. So what happened? Revenues are actually up. Revenues are up, but it took them years to figure out what the right licensing and promotional model would be for streaming services and how to get on the right playlists, right? But they did. So revenues are up over the last few years because of streaming. So this is going to happen with, with movies as well because the technology wins every time, right? It just takes time to get the business model to work. The technology is already winning. That is, we can sit down and watch a Netflix uh, 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 you know, produced movie today and, and, and absolutely love it, you know, as, as you know. 
and many and some of them now, you know, they stick it in the movie theater for a day so that over a week or something so they can go to the Academy Awards. But the fact is, is the technology is not our holdup anymore. We can get 4K streamed to us. So if the technology is in the holdup, again, what's the holdup? Well, the business model has to has to morph. Well, the business model is going to morph, and the, they're going to find the right price point and the right promotion so that whatever the price is, 10, 15, 20, 25 dollars, you'll go. I want to. I want to be one of the first ones to watch this movie, and I'm going to see it. You know, eight or ten or twelve weeks ahead of when I could rent it for five dollars, and I'm willing to pay the nineteen dollars because I want to see this today. And they're going to figure out that model. They're going to figure out that I, model. I wonder. Else I, I wonder if um, both quality and production costs will change. Meaning, you know, instead of it might not make economic sense to spend three hundred million dollars on another super superhero franchise. Uh, instead, there might be more kind of high quality indie movies. It reminds me of like, let's say the mid nineties or the mid seventies, where we saw different spikes in interest in indie movies before, you know, there's, there's always been kind of this cycle between indie and heartfelt and dramatic movies versus sure. uh big budget special effects franchise movies, like, well, well, you know, the Avengers and of so course, on. Of course, or star Wars or whatever. What, well, yeah. what's interesting is if we look at Netflix, okay, as a movie producer, as a content producer, um, Disney number one, Netflix number two, in terms of expenditures right now, over $10 billion a year producing content. And some of their content cost $100 million to produce, you know, like the Martin Scorsese film that they had on this year that was, uh, you know, amazing and had all those stars. It was a $100 million production in a drama, like a three-hour drama, but it was a drama. So, um, uh, you know, the data doesn't show that yet. The data shows people are going to be willing to spend whatever it takes to get that audience. The only thing that will change is, do I get in a car, go to a theater, buy my popcorn, end up spending, who knows, you know, $75 for two people, right? Between popcorn and a hot dog and, and, the, and the movie and the, you know, and then the, you know, half hour driving there and parking and getting there early and getting in line, whatever it is, Right. Or do I just push the button and watch that 4K presentation on my television, make some popcorn for $1.29, and enjoy it? I'm going to bet over time people side with number two because yeah. they just do. Conveni you know what? Jobs taught us convenience trumps all. Convenience trumps all, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, on, on the one hand, there's some change in customer behavior that has to happen. So, for instance, often date night, for either whether it's a first date or a couple just trying to get out on a Friday night, uh, date night is often go to the movies. But I do think people aren't going to be as eager to sit, you know, in a, you know, basically movie theaters you could think of as germ filled, and people are going to be a lot more sensitive uh, to that. And so there's going to be all this social distancing behavior that's going to stick with us for a while or maybe forever in this new normal. Right. And I think movie theaters are not conducive towards that. And I just notice with, with my wife, for instance, I don't know, I've, I've been to central park in New York city for the first time in 25 years during this, during this period, because my wife and I take walks to stay healthy and to get outside once a day. And so rather than go to a movie, people might actually do things that involve conversation or something healthy or whatever. I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And especially if you can save all the extra time, call it an hour and a half, again, driving there, getting there early, buying the stuff, et cetera. I can just watch the movie at home in an hour and a half and be done. And 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 we're already hugging. <laughs> right. We don't have to get in the car to wreck the mood. <laughs> and and there's but, no but plague. 
and, and interesting that your next one, your next uh, thing for this post COVID economy is related to this. And I agree with it also Netflix down, down. Yeah. which is not as obvious, but, <laughs> but I'll, I'll agree in the sense that first off, we haven't even seen, we've, we've barely seen the introduction of Disney plus we haven't yet seen the introduction of HBO max, which is kind of HBO turned into Netflix and, and, and that's going to be very powerful. I just think there's going to be so much competition and no, and just like, just like many things, you know, like when, when I buy a book, I don't think to myself, oh, this is a Simon and Schuster book versus this is a, a random house book. Like I never know who the publisher is. I focus on the content, the author and so on. Right. And I think the same thing's going to happen. You're not going to care what platform it is. You're just going to hear about some show from your friends and it, you're going to be, your, your mind is going to be platform independent. So the more competition there is to Netflix, the worse it is for Netflix. Well, that's the problem. Uh, so, so look, Netflix was a monopoly for the longest period of time. And then Amazon Prime showed up and started at least putting movies out there and eventually generating their own content. Then there were two. And Apple TV, a little bit to an extent, though a little late, clearly is getting in the game and they're willing to write big checks for content. Well, now NBC, the Peacock Network is going to have their own. Uh, Disney Plus is on fire, right, as we know, uh, in terms of subscribers. We've never seen any, any kind of subscription go like this. Uh, CBS, because of uh, its Star Trek fan franchise and Picard and all that, is doing very well. And, uh, and Hulu and now YouTube, you know, plus and sort of all these things. So we're going from an era of three years ago where there was kind of one player to an era where uh, essentially it's cable TV, except we have to put it together ourselves and pay them all individually. Which suggests, by the way, again, there will be a cable that puts it all together for you in a package and you just pay you pay your $250 a month and it all comes to you, which we'll, I suspect we'll all go back to. But, but nevertheless, um, Netflix can only go down, not because it's not a well-run company. It's an amazingly well-run company. They have amazing content. It's just because we're going from a near monopoly to at least a dozen major players. And people are just not going to write a dozen checks every month. They're going to pick the ones that are most important and they're going to say, it's fine. It's good enough. Yeah, I suppose you know one way to analyze it is who is, you know, per dollar spent, which of these companies are making the most hits? And that will sort of tell you the winner. So historically on cable, you have companies like HBO, mm -hmm. which seem to, you know, every show becomes a hit almost, or 50% of their shows are hits. Whereas Netflix, it. it might be something like one out of 20. Right. And, uh, you know, that might be one way to analyze this, but is there ever a tipping point where there's just too much content and we're like, oh my God, I can't even, there's a hundred new sitcoms on Netflix. I can't, there, I can't deal. It, there already is too much content. You know, you don't know. They come out with like 50, some, 50 or 60 new shows a year. We don't see them because we find the ones that our friends say, oh, you got to see this. And you know, you watch that. And then you finally get into Mozart in the jungle and they cancel it and they don't tell you why right? <laughs> it just aggravates you. Um, because there's no ratings that, that we get to see. Uh, right. so, so I think um, um, uh, we're already overloaded with content. There, there is way too much, there's way more TV than I ever wanna watch in my life, right? In fact, there's already more shows that, that, that you would tell me right now. You say, it, I mean, tell me the top three or four shows that you like right now that are on streaming networks. Well, it's, it's funny because I think there was a golden era of television from 2005 or 2003 to about 2012. So I've just recently re binge watched, uh, breaking bad lost yes, and yes. mad men. Well, and lost. it's, it's, it's yeah, amazing. Lost is, lost is my lost Battlestar Galactica, breaking bad and mad yep. men are probably my top four favorite shows of all time. Yeah. Uh, not counting some sitcoms. I, I love sitcoms. 
but there's 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 not really that many new new shows on these platforms where, where I'm dying to see. And like you said, I could get committed to a Mozart in the jungle and then it'll get canceled and I'll feel I'll feel left out. Like I feel I'll feel like, oh, I don't want to make an emotional commitment to this. Like imagine if you had made an emotional commitment to Breaking Bad and then after season one or <laughs> lost and after season one, it was just canceled for no reason. That would have broke my heart. I know. Well, fortunately, Lost, they allow the story arc to finish, right? And what you could decide if it makes sense in the last episode or not. But nevertheless. I, I, love the, I love the last episode. It's a great episode. It does leave you thinking because some people have, of course, said, you know, well, it was all a dream or it never happened or it did happen or they're in heaven. or they're, it's, it's a really fascinating uh, uh, show and fascinating the way they wrote it. What, what I loved about Lost that you don't see in a lot of new shows is Every episode sort of left you, you know, with a quandary and a puzzle. Uh, it, it was it was amazing how they did that. And something new would enter in you. What's that ghost thing? What is that? What What's going on? And you're trying to solve the problem in your head. And, of course, maybe even the writers hadn't solved it at that time, right? <laughs> we don't know. Right. I think I think that's kind of what happened is that the writers were really great at, at raising more and more questions about what is the nature of this island yeah. and not as, and this is a common thing. Some writers are really great at creating that feeling of, you know, this is a vast universe, you know, where things have been happening for way outside the boundaries of the story and they don't quite know how to end it. And some people are very good at, at knowing how to end it, but I appreciate both sides of that. Uh, they're, they're, it's amazing. Well, we should move on. So that's the reason uh, Netflix down Amazon. So, but, yeah, go ahead. But let, but, but let me ask you this though. Like, uh, again, I still wonder, can Netflix go way down, you know, because again, with hundreds of shows, there just might come some point where it's not, they're, they're not going to be able to sustain a $12 billion production budget every year. That's right. And, you know, they need that to kind of generate new subscribers. And as there's more competition, you know, it's Peter Thiel's zero to one thing where it's great to be a monopoly. But when they become a competition, prices are going to have to go down. They're going to get wrapped up, like you suggested, in these cable packages. And you know, it might be, it might come to a point where some of these uh, new networks, if you will, don't have the economics to exist. Well, here's the thing: nobody would want to compete against Disney. That it's a ridiculous thing. They have the biggest budget, and no one knows how to build a following for a set of characters better than Disney. And they follow it all the way to their amusement parks and to the stores and everything else. And Netflix doesn't have that, right? They're they're you know they're new to the content production business over the last you know decade or so. Disney's been doing it for a hundred years. They've got it down. Um, so the fact that there is a Disney Plus, uh, you know, if I'm Netflix, that's what I'm most scared of. They were scared of Amazon. Absolutely, Amazon Prime takes some of their their oomph away, but um, but yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, it's a zero to one thing, and what whatever you had one right, and now you have I don't know point. Even if you have ten percent market share, twenty percent market share, it's point two, and you used to have one, and you had all the United States, so your growth is overseas. But how much you're going to charge? So it's a very complicated I issue, and I love Netflix, and I, I, let me you know I know the management team. The management team is outstanding. These are great people. Uh, but even a well-run business eventually runs flat into, you know, competition that is undeniably difficult. And Disney Plus, you know, look, if you're a home with kids and the kids are on Disney Plus during this time and it comes to, you know, things are tight and you start looking at the bills you can cut. Well, here's, you know, $25 a month we can cut. Nobody really watched Netflix last month. We watched one thing and it's available on Amazon Prime and we kind of get that for free anyway because we already pay Prime. People don't think about Amazon Prime is free, but it's free. 
It's free. Right. It's because everyone's got Prime. So um, so now Disney Plus and Prime, good enough. It's very interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting. Right. Like if I if I and this will lead into the next uh thing in your article, but if I had if I had only if I could only pick one, I would definitely pick Amazon Prime because it's got, for instance, all the HBO shows. It's got uh, you know, almost every show that's ever existed except for the Netflix shows. That's right. So it's interesting. So your next one, and you say this is obvious and double obvious, but Amazon is obviously going to benefit in this post-COVID era. It, it's kind of benefiting right now. They're hiring hundreds of thousands of new workers. I'm ordering every, you know, right now the primary expense for people is, I would say, food, TV, and maybe books. I've been ordering books. And Amazon is the only, and 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 supplements, by the way, vitamin right. supplements. Right. And Amazon exactly. is the only place where I order everything. And and even they say they can't even fulfill all the demand for the first time ever. I'm getting shipments delayed, but I still would rather order from Amazon than any other website. So, so, and, and their stock, by the way, wasn't hit as much. Like it went down with the market due to just the normal flight uh, to cash, but they're going to quickly get back to all-time highs probably faster than any other stock on the market. That's right. They're, they're nearing their all-time high uh, right now. I mean, nearing, you know, very close and, 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 uh, uh, and, and by the way, so is Microsoft and Apple and actually Facebook isn't down that much. I mean, we could go through these, these FANG stocks. AMD uh, it continues nearing its all-time high. It had popped up a little above that, but it's around, I don't know, close to $50 and it topped out at 57 or something. So uh, That's so, fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's very interesting in weak times to watch the strong stocks. Why is that? Because there's a flight to quality and people are perceiving certain things as quality. And people are going to perceive Amazon. Uh, let's let's flip it around. Amazon's got ten to twelve percent of the overall U.S. retail market. Well, right now with all stores closed, that number I don't know went to twenty four percent, twenty five percent. Right now, you know, some number like that. Right, it had to it had to double, maybe more, because Macy's is closed now. Macy's online is open, but all of Macy's stores, whatever it is, eighteen hundred, crazy number are closed. They laid off their, you know, 150, 200,000 workers. So all you have to do is step back and say, who's hiring? Well, Amazon is trying to hire hundreds of thousands of workers to throw in their warehouses because they can't keep up. Amazon Prime that was two days, is, was one day, <laughs> is now four or five days. Uh, Walmart is hiring. Walmart's hiring. They're overwhelmed. Yeah, Walmart's hiring like 600,000 people. <clears throat> They're hiring in their stores because they can keep their stores open because they sell food. So if you absolutely need to get out of the house, and you shouldn't go there, by the way, I'm not promoting this at all. It's the opposite of what you should do. But people can only go to certain stores. You can't go to Macy's. You, you, know, you can't go to many stores, but you can go to Walmart. And people are finding Walmart online. So this has been good for Walmart. It's good for Amazon. Surprisingly good for CVS, who's hiring 100,000 workers also. Why? It's one of the few stores that are open. And drugstores actually have everything. They have food, they have drugs, and they have a bunch of other stuff. So people are going there. So, so, so what, what happens is people, real quickly, people yeah. uh, get into a habit during these eight weeks, let's say, whatever, however long it's going to be, six, eight, ten weeks, and they get into a habit of doing something they haven't done before. And once they get into the habit, they're not just going to walk away 100%. Maybe they walk away 50 or 60 or 70%, but people who had rarely used Amazon are now using it every day. That won't end. That won't end. Macy's will never get all of its customers back in its stores. Never going to happen. With all due respect to Macy's. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know, the combination of Amazon up and and not only movie theaters down, 
but basically every retail storefront down yeah. is going to be very interesting. So I think there's going to be, uh, there's, there's sort of unknown unknowns as Donald Rumsfeld would say, like, we don't know what's going to happen next, but you know, stores and particularly movie theaters are very large spaces. And I kind of see what's going to happen or, or one possibility is there's no more movies in a movie theater, but maybe 20 restaurants close down the actual restaurant part where people sit, but they open up, you know, in a movie theater, 20 kitchens for different restaurants to deliver and there's no more seating, it could but be. now we just have the kitchens, you know, cause the, the space is going to have to be transformed somehow or not. I mean, there could be just like New York city could turn into a ghost town of storefronts. Well, you know, movie, the empty movie theaters. The interesting thing is uh, I saw an analysis maybe a year ago of the retail space, the, the brick and mortar retail space in the U S versus anywhere else in the world, say Europe. And our per capita retail space is two or three or four times almost anywhere else you look in the world. And, and that never made any sense. It, it, it never made any sense. We were just a big consumer spending society that, you know, liked to walk through this retail space. But it's probably not sustainable forever. And so if you think about this, what's happening now over eight weeks was always going to happen. That is, Amazon was always going to take a larger percent of retail from 10 or 12 percent to 20 or 30 percent. If I said that was out 20 years from now, you'd say, of course, they'll have 30 percent of retail of all retail in the U.S., let's say 30 years from now. But what we didn't know is that this is going to accelerate what was already happening. That's all it's doing. Your JCPenney, your same store sales have been going down, let me think, for 20 years, right? There's, there's, and there's no escaping it. And by the way, closing more stores, closing more stores is not a path to growth. It's still a path to death. It's just slowing it, right? What, what are the, when you're closing stores, what are you doing? You're flattening the curve just like we talk about right. with COVID. You're flattening the curve, but in the end, it ends up at zero, <laughs> right? You can't grow your way out that way. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
I sort of feel like the phrase flattening the curve is going to be like the phrase, the long tail. Like it's going to be, it's going to take on this whole new meaning in, in every industry. So for instance, you know, the stimulus package you can argue is flattens the curve on the destruction of the economy. So right. it, it pushes back the amount of time we can keep the economy paused because there's just money coming into the system, right. which will have some sort of unusual effect, but it will at least keep the economy buoyant if it's not closed for too long. Yeah. So we flattened the curve there. And so what you're saying is closing stores is an interesting model. Is it, it flattens the curve on the eventual death of a, a company or but, an industry. But you still die. Look, look, look at it. Sears flattened the curve for 30 years. They continued to close stores. Then they combined with Kmart and continued to close stores until they closed them all. They did, they did get to their end goal. <laughs> but, but, right. but but that really shouldn't have been the goal. That's the problem. When you see people closing stores, just run because they're, they're, that's not a way to to promote growth. It, you can't it's, grow your way that way, right? It, it, it's so interesting too because you know the guy who bought Sears was an amazing, amazingly talented hedge fund manager, Eddie yep. Lampert, who had that's made right. billions investing his money, and and yet even the, one of the smartest investors in the world like that, like nobody would say this is a dumb guy. And yet he he quadrupled down on Sears and just just lost it all. Oh, and it, it, was it just a, goes to show you that you, sometimes you have to look at these things not in the context of oh well you know what's the real estate worth what's these products worth blah 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 but you have to look at the overall trends over decades and to make some of these predictions and it, you know depending you have to zoom in to see kind of the financials and so on but you have to zoom out to see society to, to make a good decision like this i'll say something that uh, i've gotten to talk about a lot when i when i speak at conferences often i'm at a retail conference or shopping malls or these sorts of you know representative uh, uh people in the audience and you know people kind of poo poo sears but i say hold it sears was the original amazon they invented mail order in the early 1900s you could mail order a log cabin and it would show up in pieces on a truck and you could put it together. They invented mail order. You couldn't do it online yet, but they invented the catalog, they invented the idea of warehouses, and they invented the idea of shipping it direct to you. They invented it. They were Amazon. And then when Amazon came around, they didn't continue their trek. They just built more stores and got killed. It, it, uh, how did how did they miss their own invention? I mean, they got they they literally got usurped from below, starting with a bookseller that just came up, right? That just ate yeah. their lunch. And, and and what they should have done is said, "Hold it, our roots, our mail order. This is what we do. We're just going to move it online and own it." They they failed miserably. I mean, they they missed the whole boat. Uh, well, it's just like it's just like it's like how Kodak invented digital film. They did. And yet went bankrupt because of digital film. They just didn't pursue it. And even though they were the biggest innovator in, in the whole industry for 80 years, they they blew it. They had all but, the pads. Oh, okay. They had all the pads. I'm gonna I'll, I'll I'll touch base on Kodak for a second because I'm I'm yeah. I'm I spent a lot of time in Rochester. Uh, I'm on the board of uh, board trustees of Rochester Institute of Technology, and I and I and I serve with many people who are ex Kodak executives, and we're in the room when they were making those decisions, either at the board level or the executive level. And uh, Kodak's uh, first, uh, 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 you know, sort of digital photography work was in the late 60s, throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s. They had all of the patents. I mean, they had done all the work. But, but, but two things always, because we got to talk about this, two things always came up at the exec staff meeting, which is one, if we start to promote digital, what happens to our you know ninety point margin 
you know, silver halide film business, and how's it going to fill our factories? So we shouldn't go there. That, that, was, that was one. And two, they failed to understand why anyone would want to use digital. And here's what they kept coming back to. The resolution of our film is the equivalent of, depending on what film you choose and, you know, what, what uh, ASA rating, blah, 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 you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million pixels, whatever. I mean, it's really, really high resolution. Film had gotten very, very, very good. So they kept thinking, who would ever want to use digital? Did you ever see the picture quality? And at the time, it was like VGA, and it sucked. But they missed something that I opened with, which is Steve Jobs taught us with the um, iPod, actually, which is convenience trumps quality. If you could carry all your songs in your pocket, they weren't nearly as good of a quality as you could listen to at home, but it was okay. You would do that for the convenience. And the same was true with digital. The minute you could put a camera in a phone, or even just have a small digital camera and keep it with you and never have to develop film, uh, even if the quality was far less than film, it didn't matter because the convenience trumped the quality. And that's well, it's what interesting they, that they failed to see. I think there's, there's two things out of that. One is, if you can ever make an exponential leap in convenience in any industry, that's always going to win. It there's even wins. like there, There's even studies on this. Like, if you have a shorter commute, chance on average, you'll be less stressed than people who have a longer commute. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's every, so that means if you live across the street from work, it's better than living two hours away from work. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, so the other thing is, is that, um, uh, I forget what the other thing was. I had two things, but, but you get but, it. Yeah. Can we, yeah. all right, we should go on. There's so many things here yeah. that we should so, fly so, through. Cause we should, there's some yeah, yeah. later on. Right. Yeah, so I'll skip around a little bit too. So yeah. this one I, I don't necessarily agree with, but let, let's talk about it. So IPOs, which are the way companies go public on the stock market, mm -hmm. you're saying that's going to be down. Just for 2020. I'm not so sure. Yeah, okay, just for 2020, that could be. Because we're going to have, you know, essentially $6 trillion in extra cash floating around right. the economy. There's, there's got to be, people are going to need an outlet. There's going to be a demand for hot new investments. So if somebody's, you know, whatever the hot new fields are, we, we can't really predict, but if there's a, a company coming out of one of these fields and it decides to go public to get, to take money from the public, uh, the public's going to have the cash at some point because of the stimulus to invest. It's a, it's a very, very good point. Actually. I think that's a, that's a good point. Here's my concern. First of all, a lot of the companies that were lined up to go public, I'm going to choose WeWork, but I could choose five others, right? should never go public, right? In fact, WeWork's in right. real trouble because, as you know, these small companies they lease to, if you haven't read, in the last few weeks, they've just said, um, we can't pay our rent. <laughs> Throw us out, we don't care. <clears throat> in fact, we're working from home and it's kind of working. WeWork has, there's a lot of those companies that were kind of lined up to go public at very high valuations. And um, I think they're going to have a hard Even time Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah, even Airbnb. Had to go raise a billion dollars to stay alive. Right, at, at a lower business. valuation than their prior round. That's right. That that's exactly so, right. And you know, and and even though Airbnb is a is a great company and it was a great business model, on the one hand, it might you know the the new normal, which might involve less travel for a significant amount of time, might negatively affect Airbnb. So we, it's very there's a lot of uncertainty even in these like well run companies. That's exactly right. So so look, I, I, IPOs are market psychology, as you know. It's it's first of all cash on the side. Right? Is there money on the side? 
And number two, and actually big money on the side, hedge funds and banks, et cetera. And number two, uh, it's a market psychology. Are we ready to put money to work in more high-risk kinds of ventures rather than flight to safety? And I think this year is going to be a little flight to safety just because of the psychology, just because of the psychology. People are, and, and the second reason is the market is down enough where there's some real buys, real buys out there that are worth getting into, where we haven't seen that in a decade. Right. Like I, you know, I mostly invest in private companies and for the first time now in about five or six years, maybe even longer, yeah, like seven or eight years for the first time now. I would rather invest in some of these public opportunities right now than a private company that's illiquid. There's a lot of problems with investing in private companies. I would always rather invest in a public company, but for the past few years, they've been too, there's been no pricing. real interesting opportunities. That's yeah. right. It was everything was we were all priced out. Well, right now we're priced in. There was great great right. article in the Wall Street Journal today. It's like now is the time to buy stocks, right? You might not see certain Look, some companies were were cut by 80 or 90% and you go, this is a fundamentally good company. They have cash. They're now trading below their cash value. This is dumb. Like, nobody's watching, right? Yeah, I, now's yeah. the time to get in. And so your risk-reward there is so, uh, is so much on your side that there's just no reason for people to jump into, in, into IPOs this year. So I think IPOs, you know, traditionally when the IPO market closes, it kind of closes for a year or so. So my sense is it's closed for this year. It'll open up next year. But we'll see. Your point is well taken. Six trillion is a lot of money. It's got to go somewhere. And our kids will yeah, all have the, to all, pay it back. Although there's, <laughs> whenever there's any kind of financial crisis, though, the, the new normal always affects the stock market. So after 2001, 2002, the IPO market was never, never returned to 2000 levels or 1999 levels. And after the financial crisis, the IPO market never really returned to prior to the financial crisis levels. So right. we'll see what happens. We'll see. Very now, good. Uh, yeah. Now, now the next one, um, uh, skipping around a little bit again, but the next one, transportation down. I think that's sort of obvious traffic down. That's sort of obvious. But the question a lot of people have is, will there ever be a point where, you know, airlines, airplanes are as full and as busy as they once were? So let's say airplane represents the ultimate in transportation because it's the most expensive. It's the most difficult. It's the most expensive to produce. So will airplanes airlines ever really get back to where they were? So it's a great question. So here I was talking about, obviously, local transportation. Later, I cover business travel, specifically on airlines. And I'm going to say that airlines will never recover. And the reason is, for the first time ever, people have figured out that you can actually have a lot of meetings uh, remotely like this and that they work now. They didn't work 20 years ago, right? Last time we really did this was 9-11, but they work now. And so, number right. one, if you're at a large company, the first thing I'm going to do, right, if I'm the CFO, I slash the T&E budget by 30%. And now you have to, the, 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 in order for you to travel, you have to say, I literally need to be there in person. I cannot, you have to prove that you cannot do this via Zoom or whatever. So, um, if, if that's going to be the bar, 30% of these meetings are going to happen this way, you know, remotely. And that's actually good. It's good for everyone but the airlines, right? Because if you think about it from a time perspective, we would all get on a plane, spend a day getting there, stay overnight, go to the meeting in the morning and fly back, let's say, right? Kill two days for a one-hour meeting. And, and by the way, have you ever traveled to a meeting that actually generated more money for you? <laughs> well, I, I, don't think, I don't think I ever have, actually. I don't think I've ever flown to a meeting to visit a potential client. And, and back in days when I was more in sales and stuff, I don't think I've ever had 
a four travel meeting that resulted in more money for me ultimately. Well, look, I, I'd say occasionally there is a time when you just need to sit in the room and look at each other's eyes and really be there and hammer out some real problem, right? That, that ends up, that results in an order. And there's nothing like, as they say, press the flesh. But 90% of these meetings probably don't need it. And, and this has forced everyone, including everyone in sales, to figure out how to sell over Zoom. And you know what? They're figuring it out. And now that they figured it out and they can make, um, I'm going to say, they can have five meetings a day and make potentially five sales as opposed to one over two days, you're going to find that, that business travel has cut back 20 or 30%, maybe forever. Good for the environment as well, not good for airlines. So the airlines and Boeing, I talk about Boeing here, um, uh, you know, Boeing's got all these 737 Maxes sitting on the side and people were really racing, please send them to us, we're dying here, we're dying. Southwest, we need these planes. You know what they're all doing now? They're canceling them. And they can because uh, these 737s were not delivered on time. Therefore, you could just say, I never want them. So Boeing, who's got hundreds of these things, four or 500 or something sitting ready to be delivered. I don't think anyone's going to want the delivery. They're going to say, we, I, you, that's my you know guess. Be great. You know what would be great is if some airstrip or some airport goes out of business and there's all, all these extra Boeing 737s and they turn them into these um, horizontal apartment buildings, basically, and you just have like a whole little mini city on an ex-air airport that's made up of Boeing 737s for all your stores and all your yeah, homes. Yeah, the only and, problem and is that that particular little apartment that could have been built for 150K is about 150 million. <laughs> so it's, it's, right. It's, it's slightly overpriced. But it's, already, but it's already built, though. So they've got a... It's a sunk it's cost. It's going to turn into big Airbnbs. It's a sunk cost. Yeah, I mean, you know, Boeing is, is a, you know, they've got a real problem. Airlines have a real problem. Many of the airlines may go bankrupt again. I mean, they just do not have the cash to see this through. And their business won't recover in, 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 in any meaningful way. It took many years after 9-11 to recover. I don't think it ever recovers this time because today we do have a way to have these meetings. So anyway, I think that's a fascinating thing. So, so retail brick and mortar shopping, which we've touched upon before, but I agree with you down. But the question is down forever. I, I sort of think at least in urban areas down, down forever. Like, down forever. like I own a, I own a storefront place. Uh, it's a, it's a comedy club. So it's not, it's not retail, but, uh, I own a storefront place in New York city, but I'm, so I'm familiar with a lot of the other, uh, retail owners in the area. Everyone is out of business. And by the way, if you get a small business loan, a lot of those people are considering just pocketing the small business loan, you know, and still getting rid of the business. So the reason they're out of business, I'm going to ask you, is the reason they're out of business is that they were on the brink of going out of business anyway. It was always touch and go. Well, well, that's a great point because a lot of them, for a lot of them, it was always touch and go. I mean, the average restaurant had 16 days of cash in the bank. So it was always touch and go for almost every restaurant. And now they're going to get this stimulus. Every owner I'm seeing now is smiling, you know, ear to ear because they're going to get these these, you know, these stimulus loans. And I'm not so sure. I haven't really had someone say, oh yeah, we're just going to put in the money and shut down this. I haven't had anyone say that, but, uh, my suspicion is everybody's just going to put the money in their pockets and, and it'll go into the economy. They'll spend it or whatever, but not in the way the government intended, which is kind of par for the course when, when the government makes huge trillion dollar decisions. But I just don't see like, like put it another way there. I don't know anybody who is saying to me, man, I can't wait for the lockdown to be over because then I'm going to finally 
start my pizza restaurant in New York City. <laughs> like no. nobody is saying that. But here's why it's actually good for the, for the business as a whole. It turns out if you are a restaurant that only had 16 days of cash, the problem is a supply and demand issue, right? That is, there are too many restaurants and not enough people going to them, right? It, it just didn't balance out. And so when you flip that, and let's say 30% of restaurants close in New York City, let's just say, the 70% that are open are going to end up being incredibly busy, incredibly busy, because they got to take basically the same amount of people over time, right? And, and they'll be more profitable than they've ever been. Right, the, the reason a lot of these businesses are hanging on by, by a thread, obviously some not well run, is just supply and demand. It's too easy to open a restaurant. And everyone thinks they can do it. And the, the best way to lose the most amount of money is to open a restaurant, as you know. <laughs> the, the best way to take $10 million or, 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 and make or it buy zero. An airline. Or buy an airline, right, or buy a winery, which a lot of people do. So anyway, I think it's all, uh, it's all fascinating. I think a lot of these things are going to close. A lot of brick-and-mortar retail is going to close. But um, uh, we've, we've already, some restaurants in the Bay Area have announced we're not coming back. Uh, this Clark's Burgers, it's been open for 75 years. It, it's on El Camino Jeez. Real in, in Mountain View, said, um, we're not going to reopen. We were already hanging on by a thread. Um, we're done. We're, we're just we're, we're closed and we're well, forever closed and goodbye. Well, which begs the question, and this goes along with several trends, commercial real estate is going to go down. In fact, commercial real estate, I, I think, in, uh, in, could be a ma- the next major shock to the economy, let's say two or three months after the economy reopens because storefronts that have been delaying rent anyway are just going to close down and not pay rent. And, right. and a lot of, and because of remote working, a lot of offices are just going to shut down and not, not pay rent. You know, there's, there's these no eviction, you know, laws in many States now where you can't get evicted during this time. And so the landlords think, Oh, I'm going to get my three months rent, you know, at the end of this, no, I think people are just going to shut down. And and then commercial real estate, which is heavily leveraged, that's, that might be another multi-hundred billion dollar bailout. It, 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 it is a problem in commercial real estate. The values have been very, very high, as you know, New York City being one of the highest. Uh, but but the interesting thing is, is this. I've talked to many companies over the last couple of weeks who said, um, we're going to delay our expansion because we think we can allow 20% of our workforce to work from home and rotate. And that will delay our expansion by two or three years. Well, how's that affect the real estate market, right? If everyone doesn't actually have to have a desk, but they can have a shared, uh, uh, sort of a shared desk or a shared cube, it, it, because working from home is, it turns out to be fine, and people don't, you know, screw around. They're actually on video. They're doing work. So, um, so I think uh, businesses are going to find ways immediately when they come back to cut costs, travel. And real estate are the two costs. They're not going to expand. They're going yeah. to cut back. And and again, people are learning that this can work good enough. And real estate is one of the big costs for businesses. So um, you know, cut the physical plant down. Right, right. So there's there's pros and cons. There's pros and cons to this. And and the long run, as you said before, before which each which with each of these items, it's just accelerating. So people were probably trending towards fewer offices anyway, yep. hence business models like WeWork. But now they're realizing remote rather than rather than simply working in a WeWork, we could just do remote just as well and really save money. Same thing with business travel and so on. The flip side of that when you when we accelerate it is that you know you have a, a highly leveraged commercial real estate industry that, that revolves around lending and, and interest rates and so on. And that's just going to collapse. And you know, I don't think the banks or the hedge funds are as leveraged as they were in 2008 
but we'll, we, we don't really know what the domino effect is going to be of essentially a bunch of restaurants not paying their, their rent on time. Or, 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 you know, who knows? 50% of WeWork clients not paying their rent and probably never will pay their rent. They went home and they stayed home and they're finding, why should I pay that rent ever again? Sue me, you know, yeah. kind of thing. I, I, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if I have it in here. I can't remember. I, I mean, I think WeWork is done. They probably should have been done. Yes. You know, never buy high and sell low, which is their business, right? Pay this much for, you know, pay this this huge amount to, to, to lease an entire floor and then uh, sublease it at about half that rate. That makes no sense. You, you can't make that up in volume. In fact, vol the more volume you do, the worse it gets, right? The, so all you're doing is taking money from SoftBank and giving it to little companies, right? That's basically what you're doing. You're like a little bank. And now that the little companies dry up and walk away, uh, and by the way, they were paying commissions, if you, if you looked at it, that sometimes were equal to the salesperson to one year's worth of rent from the little company. The little company would come in oh and rent gosh. a desk or two or three, and the salesperson would get the entire year's rent as the commission. So the, the whole model is flawed. Like for, from, from, from day one, I don't know how anyone thought this was a good model. And um, Tony Malkin's a friend. He, he runs the Empire State Building, you may know, uh, Malkin Properties. And Tony famously in New York City, as you know, uh, uh, I don't know, a very large percentage in New York now is kind of WeWork uh, uh, sub-rentals, right? Tony said- I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and, and Like how much of the Empire State Building is WeWork? Zero. Tony refused to lease to them. He says, I don't care what you're going to pay me. It is a bad business model if I'm going to take my beautiful, you know, you know well-priced real estate and allow you to sublease it for less than I lease it for. It's, it's gonna end badly, I'm not gonna do it. And so he famously wow. said this, and the other big real estate you know, holders in New York City laughed at him and said, well, there you go, Tony, you're wrong. And he goes, no, time will, time will play this out. I will be right. Because the other thing he didn't like is he says, if WeWork ever just stop paying and they've got eight floors of your 20-story building, what do you do? What, now, right. what do you do with the people who are sitting there? WeWork just stops paying and leaves, but the people are still at the desks. You take, bring in the police and take them out. They're not going to pay you. Now, what do you do with the eight floors? So he just said, "This is I do not want this kind of company in here that is taking money from SoftBank and essentially handing it to, to startups. This is a bad model. I want nothing to do with it. So he's very famous for doing that, and he's going to turn out to be extremely right. Very savvy. Well, what does he think there. of a... a have you talked to him since this happened? What does he think of commercial real estate? You know, I haven't asked him in the last few weeks. I will do that. Um, I think that, well, first of all, the Empire State Building is a premier property. So it's in a unique position, right? You want to be in the Empire yeah. State Building, right? But if you've got non-premier or Class B office space, I think, you know, those are always the ones that suffer. Class A, you're fine because it's high-quality companies that, that have an image to protect, Right. It's once you get to this Class B stuff and the startup stuff, that's the stuff that falls out. And that's easily 50% of New York City, of Manhattan real estate, is not Class A, right? Not all of it's Class A. So that's where there's going to be a problem, and all that 50% falls out, and the bottom of that market falls out. But the Class A stuff, high-quality stuff, you know, you're in Rockefeller Center, you're in the Empire State Building, you know, you're in the Freedom Tower, it's fine. It's the, the, those are going to be fine. And they're long-term leases also. Here's four in a row that I disagree with you on. Good. So your first one is, and I, and I hate to say it that I disagree on this, but your first one is New York City up. And you say it always bounces back, always. And look, I was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I lived on Wall Street during the financial crisis. 
I've kind of had this habit of being at ground zero. And New York City, unfortunately, is ground, <laughs> ground zero for every world crisis like this. And I'm sick of it. And I'm a New Yorker. I'm sick of New York. I'm finally, I'm at my... I'm at my end. Like I would consider moving out of New York city. And if I'm willing to consider that everybody is considering that. And I don't, and I am particularly with the rise of remote and the expenses of New York city apartments. I just don't see New York city bouncing back in the same way. Well, that's a very good question. Look, um, we could say this about London. We could say it about Tokyo. We could say it about Paris. We could say it about a lot for a lot of different reasons, right? Whether it was price or it was the war or whatever the case is. But traditionally, that's never panned out. The, the big, high-quality big cities in the world, you know, yes, a bunch of people move out, and then others move in as the prices come down and say, I always wanted to be part of the Manhattan scene, let's say, or the Bronx, or yeah. whatever it is. So um, we've said this about the Bay Area, by the way, for 20 years. Oh, it's overcrowded, so people are leaving. Yeah, people are leaving, but more people are coming in at an even faster rate. So um, so there's just no history of the world. Like I said, even in the cities in Germany, even the cities in Europe that were bombed are today's largest cities, some of them in the world, and, and financial centers of Europe. So the data, you know, shows that um, people do uh, come back to these cities, and New York's had its ups and downs. But in the end, it's, you know, it's the center of Broadway and the center of the financial world of the world, of the world. But here's, and that doesn't here's, change. Here's the one fact, though, that I'll always think of before buying a place or rent, even renting a place in New York City is right now, as, we, as we're speaking, almost 50% of the deaths in the country from coronavirus are in New York City. Yes. And, and so I'm always going to be thinking in the back of my head, like, if I buy now and I'm living here when I'm 70 or 80 years old, Pause am up. I going to be <laughs> a pandemic casualty? Yeah. Yes. Yes, you are. But I'm so let's say you leave. Okay, you sell your place, your, whatever the case is, you leave. There is someone just graduating from college who is dying to get into the New York scene for whatever reason, and probably financial services, right? Who would die to finally be able to afford something that's now 30% less expensive than it was a year ago. And they're yeah. gonna come right in underneath and go, I don't know, I'm gonna be 70, 50 years from now, I don't care. Yeah. So not worried. All right, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll, we'll, we could do an over under on that one. Yeah. Um, then uh, you say, let me see here. Drinking you is say, up. <laughs> drink, drinking is up. That one I believe in. Yeah. You know, you know what's also up huge is marijuana. They those, sure. they actually stayed open recreationally because they were essential services. <laughs> and you know what? They they deal with anxiety. People That's have right. legitimate use for for pot this this period. Yeah. Same with alcohol. Here's the thing about uh, this period is that there's also a right now there's a global condoms shortage because all the condoms are made by this uh, factory in Malaysia, which is in lockdown right now. Right. So there's basically 300 million condoms out of circulation right now. And drinking is up huge yeah. all across the country. The net result uh, is pregnancies up. Yeah, pregnancies up. Like the, the next baby boom is fueled by basically drunken sex accidents. <laughs> well, so, many of them have been, by the way. <laughs> it, it, but I, I bet you it'll be a different kind of baby boom than the last baby boom. Those were all heroes coming back and, and meeting their wives for the first time in years. And now it's a little different. Um, <laughs> you say vacations, vacations up. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to Italy anytime soon. You might not go to Italy, but you're going to find places that you want to go to that look safe, that are, that are far out of the way. Uh, not necessarily a big city and you're going to go, okay, I'm, I, I got to get out. I got to get out. I've been in this house too long. I've been to Central Park a thousand times down the same paths. 
we are going somewhere, and you're going to get on a plane and do it, and you're going to wear the mask, and you're going to clean your seat, you're going to be more thoughtful about the way we interact with people, but we're going to go. Because humans, in the end, love experiences, and we're not getting those experiences right now. We're getting bored with Zoom or whatever we're doing. So I think, uh, I've talked to more people who said, I've watched everything on Netflix I ever want to watch. I, I'm running out of things to do. I've read books. i played games. I want to get on a plane and just go somewhere. So I think you're going to find people uh, do and that these experiences really matter even more than they used to. In fact, it's going to matter more than working more, if that makes sense. Rather than I'm going to work an extra week, I'm, I'm going to go for an experience. Right. I do think, I do think that the, um, the work slash vacation shift is going to change because people now are realizing, oh, there are other parts of life that I enjoy, which is for one thing, not working in many cases. Right. So, so, you know, and that could skew towards vacations, but we'll see. But this one, you said you're neutral on cruises. Are you kidding me? Like cruise, I'm, are you ever going to go on a cruise? Like cruises are disgusting now. You could get trapped on a cruise with every with all the other people waiting on the buffet line all all the time, and you're just going to get coronavirus through the ventilators the the entire time you're locked down. Well, here's <laughs> here's why I said neutral is that they're going to come back to where they were, but it'll take a few years. So we saw this in 9/11, and then we saw it afterwards several times when uh, either a cruise ship sank or ran aground or 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 had other viruses. Right, this has happened before. And we know that they can spread very quickly because of the buffet line and a bunch of other things. But in the end, people go on cruises. Now, maybe not you, but the thing with a cruise is for a family that can't afford a lot, a middle-class family, for $299, $399, $499, you can get an internal room at, you know, $400 a person and take your family. And it includes the food for a week and go to different ports. There is no cheaper way to get an experience, and that's why cruises have done very well. And by the way, there's high-end cruises, which I, I, I note here is smaller ships will have more appeal, right? But smaller ships are expensive. They're $2,500 a person. But, but you cannot beat, uh, you know, the 400 bucks for a week for a cruise, uh, for food and everything. You can't go to Disneyland for that. You can't go anywhere for that. So food and a, and a slight chance you get the next pandemic. Slight, welcome aboard, sli sir. Slight chance. I, I think I think that yes, welcome aboard. I think they'll work on uh, uh, more hygiene. One of the things they found with the closed cruise ships is that they were spreading the virus simply by bringing the food to everybody, and then the workers were getting it, and then the workers were spreading it to everybody else. So ah. even though you stayed in your room, you were taking in a tray of food and putting out a tray of food oh. and moving the virus that way, right? It's really fascinating. Um, ventilation can be can be cleaned uh, very, very easily. You can use UV cleaners and other things. And I suspect cruise ships will put those in. They're not expensive. It's really easy to kill virus in HVAC. Not a problem. We know how to do this. So, so you say uh, manufacturing down. I don't quite agree with that because, first off, when this lockdown ends, there's going to be a mini surge in manufacturing. Just be, like take condoms, for instance. 300 million condoms are going to get bought immediately. Right. And, you know, there's, there's going to be some industries where people are going to just, there's pent up demand. So manufacturing is going to have a mini surge and then the stimulus will hit, let's say within four to six months. And you'll see, see some Americans don't save money. So you'll see some demand just from the stimulus. So, and I think that carries over the, the two or three years you suggest. Yeah, it could be. be down. Yeah, good, good point. Look, I, I think consumer demand will be down because consumer demand is driven by psychology, both cash and psychology. And people, while they will get some cash and stimulus, their 401ks are down by 30%, 40% in some cases. When they see their 401k down, they go, I think we're going to hold back a little bit on our consumer spend. And if everyone holds back just 10%, that's a huge impact on 
on on on on manufacturing. Um, I do think you, the next thing tied to that though is automation, right? Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, because automation, you know, and we had this discussion last time. We were talking about at the time we were talking about Andrew Yang and automation, and is this going to be a negative? But clearly now, nobody is arguing anymore. Automation is going to be a good thing for society. Just look at like automation in healthcare. You, robots can't get viruses. So if a robot could or AI could kind of analyze a patient and minimize human, you know, doctors and healthcare workers touching that patient, it's it's a good thing. If you know the less human contact on 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 other humans, that's going to be encouraged. Yeah, that, so AI, right. automation, robots, drones, and onshoring, uh, and so on, and onshoring. Automation allows us to onshore, and everyone's supply chain was wrecked because of this. Still is. So I think you're going to see a real push for onshoring now, and we can onshore with automation for about the cost of making it in China with people and putting it on a ship and bringing it here. And you're, I think you're going to see a lot of disrupted supply chains where people start thinking about uh, um, onshoring or nearshoring and, uh, and making sure they have second sources for everything they do. So this is an interesting one. Higher education, neutral. I've had this discussion with a couple people. Uh, it's unclear because all the kids just got sent home from college uh, and and told, oh, you still need to pay just as much tuition. I don't know. And, and there's plenty of good online courses uh, uh, for free. Why do you think higher education might might survive? Yeah, great question. Um, so, so I think that what higher education is going to learn from this is that they can have some of their degree programs that are half online and half on campus. One of the things, uh, you know, being on the board of a university uh, with 20,000 students, one of the things we hear from the students is, it's, they're getting their education, by the way. They're getting their education, they're doing their things online, they're gonna get their degrees. What they miss is all the non-school stuff, right? Is being with their friends, being in the dorms, being in the clubs, doing the things together. That's interesting. That's the thing they miss the most because the school continues to go on, but all they've got left is the school stuff. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating feedback from actual students. So I think what you're going to see is, uh, is a recognition that we can teach online, that you can learn online, that we could dramatically lower the cost of education by online, but that 100% online doesn't allow the kid to grow up. Because a lot of that grow up for all of us was going to college and you know, learning how to eat and get your hair done and you know, whatever else you had to do and interact with people and live with people. You had to do that all of a sudden. And so I think at least half of the time will be spent on a college campus, even in a reduced uh, uh, fee kind of situation where you take half your courses online and half on campus, because you can't beat that on-campus uh, 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 vibe that happens and that's needed when you're you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. So what, what do you think are a couple of business models? Like let's say you're a young person, you're, you're you know, finishing with your, your first or whatever job or you just got laid off and now you're thinking, oh, maybe this is a time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, what do you think are gonna be some you know, two or three entrepreneurial models that might be successful I even in the short term? Well, uh, well, I'm not sure it's a great time to be an entrepreneur because typically after these times, uh, you know, the startup funding gets, gets challenged because uh, as, as I mentioned here, no venture firm actually wants to call their LPs for a capital call this week. It's just not. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that, but but I would say lots of startups are are, are profitable fairly quickly. Like if I'm not sure. building, uh, uh, if I'm not building a whole system that takes a year to build and a year to build a sales force and blah, 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 uh, I could just, you know, for instance, I could launch a service company 
that I could productize later and service companies tend to be profitable almost immediately. So there, there's, there's models so, that are so look, you gotta, profitable. I think you gotta look for services uh, 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 that take, I don't wanna say take advantage, but take advantage of the post uh, 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 COVID world, right? People are going to be uh, more thoughtful, more concerned about cleanliness than they ever have been. I'll say at least in the United States, right? Um, we, unless you're, unless you're living in my home, no one here seems to be no. care about cleanliness. No. People are going to be washing. Well, you're only seeing each other, but people are going to be washing their hands. They're going to be distancing. They're not going to be shaking hands for a very long time. We're going to, we're going to have this memory of this time, right? Um, uh, just as they did after the Spanish flu, everybody, you know, stayed away from each other. So I, I, I think that any business that can profit on that, so whether it's uh, UV, I'm making it up, like a UV cleaning wand, obviously there's many of them out there, but that's an example of a business that's going to sell a hundred times more than they ever sold before because people are going, I got to clean my phone. In fact, we've all seen the videos now of how dirty our phones are, so we all want phone cleaners. Of course, we can clean our phone with just soap and water and with Lysol wipes if you can get them, et cetera. But nevertheless, all, everything around clean is going to be seen as, as cool, not stupid. We've all been on planes for years. In fact, I've been flying, you know, my whole life. And my wife, of course, always would get on the plane and take out her wipes and clean the seat and clean everything. And I would look at her and go, this is embarrassing. Maybe I'll hide in the bathroom while she does this, right? This is a very bad, I don't want anyone to know we're together at this one moment in time. Otherwise, very proud of her. But she was always this way. And now she's the one who looks brilliant, and I'm the one who looks stupid. So I, you know, I start cleaning everything around me now, and and I think that uh, so I think there's an opportunity to take to, to take advantage of that. There's an opportunity to take advantage of the entire change in the in the retail brick and mortar space, right? As you said, there's going to be amazing storefronts that are available, and some of them are going to be available at ten cents on the dollar because that happened last time. In 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 one, we saw some commercial properties ten cents on the dollar. Because, you know, just anyone come in, right? So there'll be some tremendous opportunities. And at 10 cents on the dollar, there might be something that could go in there that would be quite profitable. But, but, right. but, but you know, at $200,000 a month for that small storefront in Times Square, you can't, you can't sell enough goods to, to make that up, right? That was a loss leader. F.E.O. Schwartz had the store there. It was a loss leader. You could never make money on that, that, on that retail presence. So at 10 cents on the dollar, you can't. So there'll be opportunities there. Um, There'll be opportunities in automation and robotics. We're seeing more of that. I mean, uh, Nightscope makes these uh, robots that patrol parking lots. Uh, you know, that's a great use of robots. A great use of robots. It's safe. Uh, nobody wants to do the job anyway. Um, we're going to see more robots in automation factories, more AI. Every CEO is realizing that the more AI I have, the less people I have, and AI doesn't get sick. It just keeps going. Robots and AI keep doing the work, even in COVID times. And if you had a factory that was 100% roboticized, pretty much you're still making goods right now. If you've got Tesla that has 4,000 people on the floor in Fremont, you shut down and you laid off all your workers. Actually, they furloughed their workers today. So uh, why? Because you can't make a car. You can't make a car. Even yeah. with all the automation, they can't make a car, right? Uh, what about startups in the privacy space? Because obviously privacy is going to be down and there's going to be more and big data. So the flip side of that is big data. So there's going to be more opportunity. There's going to be more data out there than ever. So there's clearly there's going to be uh, startups in security, storage, and so on. But I wonder if there's going to be more AI analysis of different kinds of, of data about humans. There'll be much more AI analysis about data and humans, particularly finding um, 
these sorts of trends and, and spotting them when they come out and then spotting, for instance, AI is being put to the test right now, uh, taking as much data, say, from 23andMe and other places to say, why do some people, even at 25 years old, die from this, yet 80% of people never have even a symptom? How, how, can that, how can it be the same thing? How is this happening? Is there something genetic in you? Is there something else, predisposition? Was it smoking? But something's different, right? Something's happening. How can it kill one person and not kill another? We get that if you're 90, right? But we don't get it if you're 25. So, so AI is being applied to that. Um, I, I think that this privacy thing is interesting. <clears throat> you know, the era of big government sort of already been here, right, and, and watching over us. But many governors over the last week have said, we're going to start going back to work when we can do very simple five-minute tests on people every few days, and, and they'll wear a badge, and they'll guarantee that they don't have this thing. Now, technically, that's a very good thing to do. I'm just saying epidemiology, right? Epidemiologically, yeah, they're very good thing to do. But from a privacy thing, I think the ACLU and people are going to say, this is way too much invasion of privacy, that if I want to go to the office, I have to have a badge that says I was tested this morning and I'm COVID-free. You know, um, um, this, this is a very... We're going down a dangerous road. And, you know, to some extent, Germany went down that road. Germany is going down this road, by the way. They're going to do this. To some extent, there was talk of doing this around the AIDS, you know, crisis. And and and, and yeah. you had to be tested and all of that. So now we're talking about and doing Singapore it. Singapore and South Korea uh, do this to the max right now. Yes, they do. So we're talking about doing it to either states or country or the entire country. And I'm not sure how people are going to feel about that at all. Either you're COVID-free or or you're not, or you've got the plague, basically, right? You've got the badge that says, I've got the plague. It's flashing red. Stay home. Right thing to do or wrong thing to do, I don't know. So uh, is, the, is there an opportunity there? Is the business opportunity? Yeah, the business opportunity is make the tags that say whether you get COVID or not. Makes the swabs. You know, there's a whole business that didn't exist a month ago. Yeah, I almost see like this science fiction future where some people are immunes and some people are not yet immune <laughs> and the not immunes have to wear masks and wait online right. six feet apart to go into a store and the immunes just walk right into the store. They're like, get out of my way. I mean, don't you want you to know, get the blood test? Non don't you want to get the blood test and find I, out maybe you had it and you're done and now you, you yeah, can I'm, go I'm, out I'm with pretty immunity. sure I did actually. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, a, my, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, well, my, my, you know, a lot of people seem to have had it in February in New York city and you know, before it was a thing. And I think my wife and one of my daughters had it and I probably got it asymptomatically just being around them all the time in uh, early. I'm hoping I'm immune in early February. I had something that absolutely, and I never get sick. I never get the flu. I had the flu shot. I had something that looked an awful lot like this, but it was before we were talking about it. And I was in bed. I mean, I, I had this dry cough. It was very odd. I didn't have the nose dripping, but I had this dry cough. And then, you know, it cleared up in a couple of weeks, and I, I was back out and, and going. But, but for me to be in bed and not make meetings is unusual. And my wife keeps saying, Kevin, you had it. You're, you know, if you ever get the blood test, you're going to find out you had it. And there was a very good chance I had. I was in Hawaii, um, actually, for kind of a business-related thing. And, um, and on the way there, there was a, a guy in front of me um, that I believe was on his way to China, of all places, right? It was just flying through Honolulu, which sometimes they do. And he was hacking up a storm. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. And it took a few days, three or four days, before I really got sick. And then I really got sick. 
So I probably got it from him, and it's and I and I'm not saying he had it or didn't have it because he came from didn't have to come from you know, whatever. But but there's a set of circumstances that might lead me to want to get the blood test right when 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 I can. Yeah. So so uh, you know I guess final final question is what if there's not a new normal? Like let's say for whatever reason uh, the economic slowdown gets all political and they they keep shutting things down for six months instead of one month. And we come back and there's no new normal anymore. Like all there is, is there's cash from the stimulus, but there's essentially no business out there. What could, what's a worst case scenario for society? Well, sure, worst case scenario is that everything stays shut down till we have a reasonable, uh, 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 you know, either medication uh, regimen uh, so that people aren't dying. So you get it, but you know, you're not gonna die uh, or a vaccine. Right, and a vaccine is 12 to 18 months away. Everybody's rushing it. I think we're going to start seeing some results even this month on some of the vaccine trials. Uh, we're very good at making vaccines now, so we will have a vaccine for this. I I believe. Yes, there's some mutations or a cure, or, or a cure, or a relative cure. That, that that's right. Yeah. And 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 both are likely to uh, be in our eyesights over the next 12 months. As you know, the medical community responded. Science responded to this faster than any other virus in history because our technology is so much better today uh, than it was even 10 years ago. So that's what's fascinating, right? Um, so we will return to normal someday. Now, the economic damage, I'll say something that is terribly unpopular here, but it's, a, it's worth a calculation. If you said, instead, we just let this thing go and everybody gets it and a certain percentage of the population would have died uh, versus the six to 10, call it $10 trillion of economic damage worldwide. It might be 20 trillion, but something like that. Rough number, it cost us about $10 million to save each life. Just rough number, about 10 million a life. Now, I don't know what a life's worth. Maybe it's worth billions. Maybe it's worth 100K. I'm, I'm not the one to judge, right? And we as humans have decided uh, uh, you can't put a price on a life. You can't put a price on a life. Right. Therefore, the 10 million per life is fine. But, but there will be a time in the future that the next time this comes around, some, com some countries will do that calculation. And they'll decide that above a certain threshold, we just have to face what comes from a, you know, this virus, and whatever virus it is, new, the, the next one, COVID-22 or whatever. And, and we're not going to have economic collapse because many countries will not recover. So Spain, Italy, they're doling out money. They're trying to save their economy. But that money is really Germany's money because it's not their money anyway, right? right? They're already bankrupt, basically. So, so now the German people have to fund what's going on in Italy, Portugal, Greece, and Spain, none of which can afford to do these stimulus programs that they're doing. And if the German people say, we're not going to take that, get out of the EU, now there's no one to pay for that. Right, this is the political uh, 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 sort of damage that happens from the economic damage of of of, of doing this, and uh, these are very hard conversations. Right, you can't even have this conversation. How do you even have the conversation? Right, these are people's lives that are in danger. And if it's your if it's your mom or grandmother, you're going. She's worth a billion dollars. Are you crazy? Right. But but right. But but like let's say let's say we take the emotion out of the word death. And look, we've all known at this point personally, someone who's probably died yeah. from this or someone who knows somebody or there's a relative or whatever. And now it's looking like there's going to be similar amount of deaths from this as flu season, which is a sin to say. You're not allowed to say that because there's, there's many ways it's different from the flu, but there's some ways in which it's similar. If we had just ignored this and, and never named it 
and it just turned out to be a quote unquote, well, the worst flu season in history, That's right? Then, you know, not the economy wouldn't have changed. And so maybe we wouldn't, maybe we shouldn't do these economic shutdowns. I think this is, you know, we're going to have 30 million people unemployed potentially right. and, and, you know, a 30% unemployment you know, annualized drop in GDP and a 30% unemployment rate for at least a month or two, yeah. which we've never had before. And look, economies have never shut down before. Like this has never really happened, right? This is an experiment. Yeah. Um, you're right. So about six to 700,000 people die in an average year around the world from the flu that we know of, but approximately according to uh, World Health Organization. And uh, so far, 60,000 have died from this, rough number, 60 to 70,000 have died from this, I, I think if my numbers are correct, as of a couple of days ago. And so we're at about a tenth of a single flu season right now. It's, it's an unfair comparison, but it is what it is. Had we done nothing, had the world done nothing, we might have had a couple million people die. Some number like that, two, three million. Would have been a bad flu season. Not the worst, Spanish flu was much, much worse but it would have been a bad flu season. And we might not have, we just might have called it a bad flu season and if old people get it, it's bad. Now, here's the thing in the middle that I might have sided towards, which is this. We know that it predominantly, fatalities predominantly happen for people over 60 or 65. What I might have done, and I might have gotten killed, but nevertheless as president, is I would have acted quickly and said, those over 60 no longer leave the house. You're quarantined. You don't go to work. Yeah, I don't care what you do. You're quarantined. Those under 60, continue to go, but social distance the best, the best that you can. Maybe even wear masks. Not to save you, but in case you've got it and you're spreading it, right? And you won't know that you have it, right? If we did that, I believe that the death rate, the fatality rate, would be approximately what it's going to be this way. And you wouldn't have shut down any of the economy. In fact, restaurants would still be open. You'd, you, you know, you'd be distancing. You'd have to separate the tables more. You'd, you know, you'd have to rethink it. Maybe the prices would go up. But, but we would have gotten used to that normal for a period of time. And the older people who are more likely to die, predominantly more likely to die. You've seen the stats in New York City, um, would be safe at home where they, you know, where they need to be. And uh, it wouldn't have been perfect, but, but we might have ended up in a close to similar place. Yeah, so I think policy decisions are going to have to be different going forward because they're going to see this is just too much, it's too much damage. Just a, there might be more deaths from the economic. You know, there's you know the rise in domestic abuse cases and child abuse cases. Can I tell you something? Suicide. I'm going to give you something that you don't know about, but you'll stew on. And I know about this because my wife is in the is in the medical device business. When they look at the stats in China, and there are people trying to really track it down, it's hard to get real data in China. When they right. closed down all the hospitals and made them COVID only, all of the people who were uh, in line to treat strokes or upcoming potential heart attack issues or valve issues or all of these things, all those people died. They never got their treatment. They couldn't get their treatment, right? They were locked out. It's called collateral fatalities, actually. There's a term for it. And the collateral fatalities may have been more than the people who died from COVID. Ugh. I mean, we don't, you know, we have to, and that's happening in New York City right now. Like if you're, if you pull up to the emergency room at, at one of your top hospitals that is dedicated to COVID, they turn you away. You can't come in here. And you're having a heart attack. They, you know, they, they go, look, drive up to Albany. You're dead. It doesn't matter. You're a collateral fatality. And there will be thousands of collateral fatalities. And then all of there, there's all of this um, not urgent, but probably should treat it. You know, and there's a lot of stuff around stroke. 
that it's not urgent, but boy, if we don't treat this in the next few weeks, you're a ticking time bomb. Guess what? The time bomb ticks during the eight weeks. We would have saved grandma, yeah. but now she's dead. She didn't die from COVID. She died from a stroke. Why? Well, we didn't, we knew it, we saw it, but there's no hospital that's going to treat her anywhere in the country right now because, um, you know, because, uh, you know, she's sort of asymptomatic and we're not sure when and probably she can wait 10 weeks. Turns out she couldn't because you don't know. So a lot of collateral I mean, this, damage all over, all around the country. Right. And I, I mean, this is even, this is a, for a much larger conversation about how to make policy, but I sort of feel like we went down one lane with one set of health officials kind of, I don't want to say the word bullying because they had the best intentions and they still do. Um, but I just, I don't, it's hard to know what's right. And, and it's even hard for the both Democrats and Republicans to know what the right thing to do is. But I hope we take some, some lessons from this about what went wrong and what went right. But you know, politics, I, I, I would put in the down category, yeah. but that's always been in the down category, well, unfortunately. So who knows? Everyone's going to be thumping their chest. Like we won. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of debriefing that needs to happen, which I don't think will the happen. Collateral health damage, the collateral uh, uh, suicide damage, the collateral alcoholism damage uh, is is irreparable in 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 some cases. And and look, I, I I don't blame Fauci at all. I mean, this is a smart dude, right? That that fortunately yeah. the president began to listen to, and and um, he basically looked at China and said, "This worked. They shut everything down, and it worked." So you do it because you have no other tools. You go, I don't know what else is going to work. Let's do that. But looking at the data, I think we will look back and there will be statisticians, not even epidemiologists, statisticians that look at the data and say, we could have accomplished 90% of the same result and probably just, you know, cordoned off a certain percentage of the population over 60. And it probably would have come very, very close and we wouldn't have damaged the economy at all. Uh, and, and so in the future, we will have better tools. And I think in the future, we'll be better prepared, far better prepared to launch vaccines and get them to market in six months, not in 12 to 18. 12 to 18 is still a record, but it needs to be six or three or two. We need to have rapid protocols to do so. We need to use AI to find the best candidates. I mean, you know, you know we can go down. And I think we'll be better prepared uh, uh, for that in the future. So always good comes of I these agree. things, but 10, maybe $20 trillion hit to the world economy is un. We, we've never seen anything like it. World War II didn't have that kind of hit, right? We don't know what this is like, but we'll figure it out. And we're going to get to the other side. It's going to be fine It's because it, it, that's how humans are, right? You come out the other side, you figure it out. We're going to be fine. Last thing, you know, look, if I'm a suffering country already, like some of the ones in Europe or in Africa or in South America, those are the ones, you know, you can't, nobody's going to throw $6 trillion at their economy or $1 trillion. They don't have it. They can't throw anything. It just will be what it'll be. And so their economies were already on the brink of disaster. This is just going to be too much for them to absorb. And so I feel bad for, for those economies and the people who, you know, didn't make those economies. They're just there. They were born there. They live there. Who were going to be in a state of poverty possibly for decades from this. And, uh, and there's, there's nothing, you know, we won't have the money to give them. So it, it's just going to play out the way it's going to play out. So as usual, you know, the suffering is going to happen in, kind of third world countries or poor countries. And, um, you know, we're the richest country on earth and, and you've got other countries in a similar position and we'll figure our way out of it by printing more money, uh, and, and handing the bill to our children. Well, and also I think, I think there's going to be, and I'll, I'll, I'll take your positive pieces of that and, and extend it just a little bit, but which is, 
I think we're going to diversify away from China, obviously, as a source yes. of manufacturing. Yes. And some of that can go to India, some of that could go to Africa, some of that might go to South America, some of that will go to these poor countries. So we'll see. I think there's still, that's one of the unknown unknowns, but we'll see. But uh, Kevin, as always, thanks for your your thoughts and insights. We're, we're heading into a post-COVID world and, and you've written such a great blueprint for what, what's going to happen. And uh, as always, so much, so much interesting insights from you and i look forward to our our next talk yeah it's fun let's uh let's uh see if we can get this uh uh actually i, I guess you could post a link to the medium article so people can read more because there's more there but but it's uh, uh yeah very fun conversation always great great to talk to you i hope we do it again in the next uh x weeks or months as we come out of this mess 